the afternoon. It's 7.30 p.m. My name's Madeline Taylor, and you are listening to TikTok on CITR 101.9 FM broadcasting from the unceded territory of the Huckamanum-speaking Musqueam people out here in the very rainy, wet awfulness that is UBC campus this evening. Um, I just did an interview briefly, and my guest was almost drowned on her walk here from the Alumni Center. So take out your ponchos and stay dry, everyone. So tonight on the show, um, I'll actually, if this is your first time tuning into TikTok, TikTok is your weekly spoken word check-in from the spoken word department here at CITR. And normally I play interviews conducted by other people, but tonight I have one that I did myself in the wake of the anniversary of the École Polytechnique massacre that happened in uh, December of 1989 in Montreal, where... 14 female engineering students were murdered by a man who set out to murder feminists. He shot 28 people, killing 14 women. And in his uh, suicide note slash manifesto, he talked about how much he hated feminism. So in the wake of that tragedy, there is has been all kinds of feminist activism and work towards women's rights. An organization here out of Vancouver called Women Transforming Cities that was started by, started by Ellen Woodsworth, a former Vancouver City Council member, holds monthly discussions about issues around women's rights and how to make cities more safe places for women. So this week's topic, they held a cafe this past Sunday, December 6th, which is the anniversary of the massacre. They held the cafe out at Hartwood Cafe on Broadway near Kingsway. Uh, talking about if remembrance leads to action when it comes to issues of violence towards women. So we talk about uh, a number of different issues, all focused around activism around violence against women. So enjoy this piece, and I'll come back and talk to you in about 25 minutes. My name is Ellen Woodsworth. I'm the founder and external chair of Women Trans. Forming Cities International Society, which um, I launched when I was a Vancouver City Councillor. So yesterday was Sunday, December 6th, and the 26th anniversary, I believe, of the 1989 uh, Montreal Massacre or the École Polytechnique Massacre, where 14 engineering students were murdered and targeted for their gender, along with 28 other people who were shot. So there was a cafe put on by Women Transforming Cities. Can you tell me a little bit about what the cafe is and what the discussion points were yesterday? Well, the 14 women murdered at L'Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal were murdered by a man who wanted to murder feminists. And he decided that women who were studying engineering must be feminists. So that's why he went to L'Ecole Polytechnique. And since that time, there's been a, a lot of women thinking about ways in which they could talk about women who are being murdered, whether it was the women, 14 women there, um, or the hundreds of women who have been murdered on the highway of tears or the murdered and missing women in the downtown east side, some of whom were discovered at the victim's farm. Um, so we decided that we, over the past few years, we've partnered with Remember Our Sisters Everywhere, who created this 
a powerful, powerful monument in front of the Via Real statement, which is dedicated to those 14 women. And this year, what we decided to do is there would be a, a memorial at the site, and then people would be invited to our cafe. And at the cafe, we would um, talk about if remembering needs action and if we need to uh, remember these women, whether it's the Aboriginal women or this, the, the women who are being killed in the Syrian war, or whether it's the women at Lake Politique or women in India, wherever. Women are rising everywhere. So we, at the meeting, we each remembered a woman, whether it was a woman that who who was Jimmy was on at the Picton Farm from the downtown east side. I remembered Serena, who I had known when I was an organizer in the downtown east side, whose DNA was found there. Um, some women remembered um, lesbians who'd been beaten up and, and killed. Some women remembered older women. There were a wide variety of women of all ages, all different cultural backgrounds that were remembered, and we we talked about those women, and then each woman designed a, a wrote on a flag, and those flags were mounted on a on a, a washing line. And we're going to take all of those names to the UN Habitat uh, Conference in Quito, Ecuador, next October, to talk about how women in Canada are not only remembering but calling for action in memory of those women. And so each one of the flags had different suggestions of how we can make cities safe for women. And, and that builds on other cafes we've done around violence against women or needing of public spaces or, um, you know, young women, older women, et cetera, and all of those recommendations um, that we took forward to the mayor and council, but that's a whole other, what we did with the hockey paper is a whole other um, part of this discussion. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the recommendations that were written on flags? Because, um, you know, consciousness raising in and of itself is a form of action, at least that's what I think, because you're spreading a word that's going to plant seeds to lead to people caring more about any given issue. But what kinds of tangible actions do you see as lacking in these days of remembrance around violence against women? Well, I I was just speaking on a panel last night at Simon Fraser, and I was asked the same question, and I said, if we only talk about violence against women as the act of the violence, the direct physical violence against women, we won't understand the context in which this is happening. And, you know, there's, there's a context of the lack of adequate housing, so women are unable to leave abusive partners because there's nowhere they can afford to go. Or, you know, young women at universities are carrying heavy, heavy debt load that go on dates, and the assumption after the date is that that they'll sleep with the men. If they don't, they're often forced to sleep with men. I mean, I know almost everybody I know have experienced date rapes. Um, if we if we talk about violence against women, we have to talk about the police forces, and we have to talk about women who 
don't feel safe to go to the police and talk about what happened and who know that one in a thousand women who report rape actually get their case taken fully to trial. So there's, there's discrimination at all those levels, and then there's the shame and the, the trauma of the abuse itself that leads one not to feel safe in talking about it um, with, with one's friends, let alone with strangers who can often re-traumatize one. And then the, the, the financial and the, the difficulty of getting it all the way to the courts. And then, you know, there's, there's women, 42% of women in Canada um, work in low-paid, non-benefit, um, temporary jobs. So their, their situations are very precarious. 80% of people who use bus at night are women, and, and the buses don't come very frequently. Um, they're, they're expensive. Uh, so women may be standing at an unsafe bus stop, or they might hitchhike, or they might walk home, all of which lead to women being in unsafe situations. So, so violence against women um, takes many, many forms depending on the context. There's, violence against women is extremely high, um, and it, it will continue to happen in the world as long as women um, don't have the power and don't have the means to fight back both publicly and Personally. So is it is the key then just to connect and understand that all violence against women of varying races, classes, sexualities, um, and political or religious persuasions, that it's all connected through one vein of misogyny? Or is it something that you need to isolate all of these varying factors? Because... Obviously, all of the terrible happenings that you just listed are related to the fact that people are women, but it's also related to so many other factors that don't only have to do with their gender. Mm-hmm. I think it, it is about power, and what women transforming cities call for is an intersectional lens on all policies, programs, funding, and staffing. And if you put an intersectional lens, and, and we've just finished a document that we did with five cities and a number of NGOs across Canada calling Advancing Equity and Inclusion a How-To Guide for Municipalities that explains what an intersectional lens is. And we're inviting everybody to a workshop on January 26th, but that's... Anyways, if you put the... You're welcome to plug it if you want. I don't mind at all. (laughs) So the intersectional lens then says, okay, if you're a young woman who is differently abled in a wheelchair... Uh, in a facility, violence is going to look like this. If you're a trans woman working in the downtown east side and you're First Nations, violence is going to look like that. You know, if you're an older woman whose um, whose kids want your money, violence is going to look like that. You know, each of us live in different situations of power and powerlessness. Um, and... It plays out differently, but it, it, it's absolutely, it's a multiplicity of, of relationships that in which some people have power and other people don't have power. Yeah. 
Um, I was looking at the Status of Women Canada website today, and they use the uh, the Montreal Massacre as a jumping-off point for talking about uh, intimate pa- partner violence, sexual violence, and sexual assault um, on campus in particular, they cited, and uh, the horrible phenomenon of missing and murdered Indigenous women. So what does it mean, especially coming from the government now, what does it mean to discuss all of these things in the same breath? breath as it pertains to violence against women more broadly because it definitely didn't used to be that broad sweeping a conversation i i've gone i went to the website too and i I was just amazed that that was a site and i thought this is this is post harper because harper gutted the status of women it closed 12 of the 16 offices it changed the criteria under which we could get funding, taking out education and advocacy. It cut the amount of money and the split in the cycles of funding. So I think it actually is because there's a new government and their the staff are feeling freer to speak out. Um, but it is also true that during times of recession, there's one third increase of violence against women. So when when people are under enormous stress financial stress, it's kind of, you kick a woman, you kick the kid, you kick the dog, you take out your frustrations on, on people close to you because that's that's what you can do. You don't have much power elsewhere. But I think that it is also true that, that women, despite the fact we've lost probably thousands of women's organizations since Harper came to power, since the conservatives came to power, um, I think that Younger women tend to, I don't know how to say this well, they, they believe they're equal. And I was raised in a family where I believed I was equal, but most women weren't. So what's happening today is, you know, half the medical school, half the law schools, et cetera, are filled with women, but then all of a sudden they go out there and they can't get a job or they, and they can't get into the partnership levels. Um, and they have a child and all of a sudden they're facing all this huge amount of unpaid work. So the powers relations shift between them and their partner and them and their law firm or their medical partners. Everything shifts when that huge chunk of unpaid work um, faces them. And then they've got aging parents, so there's that chunk of unpaid work they've got. And that huge um, definition of women as, as the people who do the unpaid work really means that if you don't include that in your intersectional lens, you haven't a clue what women's lives really look like and why uh, everybody's pushing for child care in the Royal Commission. As women report, even every single election, child care has come up as a critical issue in every single issue. Uh, Election, we've lost that one. But without it, women are trapped in doing all the un- the majority of the unpaid work, including child care, and then they often are the ones who um, stay at home and, and, you know, or are juggling the unpaid work and paid work and can't save for RSPs, can't d- move up into senior levels of, of office. So it's all, all of these things are, are absolutely imperative to look at when you really examine how best to address the real uh, enabling of women to live equally and make Vancouver the greenest city in the world 
by 2020? Why can't we make it the most women-friendly city in the world and put a, a gender lens on on the greenest city policy, on emergency preparedness, on our budget, on our staffing? Well, why do you think there is a, a resistance to approach things with a gendered lens from any perspective, whether it's policy or administration in a university? Because that seems to be thematic across institutions. Because I don't think, I honestly don't think that most people, and I have to say many women, really don't understand that we inhabit the world and we inhabit spaces differently. You know, they really, you know, when we started Women Transforming Cities, everybody said, well, what do you mean? Why why don't cities work for women? They're working for everybody. And then we started to explain about the different ways in which women, you say, public transit, 80% of the users of public transit at night are women. Uh, you know, public spaces, like there's two parks in the entire city named after women. There's almost no streets named after women. Uh, you look at the levels of violence in the city and look at the downtown east side. Who is bearing the brunt of the public violence, let alone the private violence, where incest is still a taboo to discuss or to confront? So once you start to, um, you know, take a look at it, and it's difficult to do because most institutions don't provide disaggregated data. So you have to, you know, start there to demand for disaggregated data so you can actually see. But say that the city of Vancouver has two major unions. The outside workers union, QP1004, is 95% men. And that's, that's thousands of workers. So is and it a matter of getting women into positions of leadership to expose these invisibilities then? It's a... Well, one of the things Women Transforming Cities did the last few weeks is we call, I called the mayor's office and I sent a formal letter to him and to all our, our, our uh, members and said, we want the new city manager, the new director of planning, the new director of engineering to put an intersectional lens, to be, to have, uh, to be people who would put an intersectional lens on their policies, programs, funding, and budget staffing. And um, despite the fact that I spoke to the head of the mayor's office, who I know, I haven't heard back, and now it's two weeks. He agreed, and I spoke to Councillor Andrew Reimer. They both agreed that this would be an important thing to do, but I have heard nothing back formally at all. And, you know, they, it's, they don't want to change what they're doing. You know, it's very easy to continue in the same way, and it doesn't disrupt people. Although Penny Ballum was very supportive of, of us doing this document, and she agreed to uh, dedicate one staff position to work with me and the other cities across Canada. So there will be a, a workshop for staff, but it will be a volunteer on how to use this advancing equity and a how-to guide for municipalities, but it will be a voluntary workshop. It won't be mandated for all staff, all departments to start, you know, formulating a plan that's got measurable and time-framed um, uh, objectives that they have to meet. And a lot of women will run for public office. It does not mean that they will work for women's issues. That's true, and it's often frustrating to see that women in positions of power don't have a feminist framework to their thinking. And I'm wondering, is that something that, 
I mean, I I identify as a happy, vocal, loud feminist, but <laughs> is it something that we should fault other women for not doing? Um, it's it's not a matter of faulting people. It's a matter of calling people out to say you were elected because we voted for you as a woman. And because we want equality, we will still support you for your right to run as a woman and to run in a winnable seat as a woman. But you are there on the backs of other women, and you have a responsibility to raise the issues that remain for the overwhelming majority of women. So we have a responsibility to do that, just as you know, people, the gay movement calls out gay men, or the you know the Aboriginal community will really put the pressure on Judy Rebel Wilson to represent First Nations issues. So I think there is a responsibility. I, be, I believe firmly, as it, when I was elected to council, it was my responsibility to work really hard. And I was able to get the Women's Advisory Committee set up and then to you know, raise the issues in council publicly and raise them with the media. And, and it, I think we should ask for elected officials to speak out on these issues and to is, fight for them. Is there a way to, um, well, what's your, what are your thoughts on calling people into those conversations versus calling them out? Because I've, uh, I've been thinking a little bit recently around um, a- appealing to people's emotional side as a, as a tactic for getting them involved in uh, advocating for certain issues. And I'm wondering if you in your career have found that that is more effective than being combative. Or is there a middle ground? I think it it depends whether if the person's in power, like Heather Deal or Andrew Reimer, say, are both in vision, and vision holds the overwhelming majority of council. So they are in power. So they're the ones that can actually make the change. So you're gonna you have to approach them. Um, you can approach them privately. Um, but you actually have to approach them formally because they actually are in a position where they should be taking these actions. And if they don't, then you can publicly expose them. Like if we don't um, hear back from them, then I feel it would be justified to release my statement to the media, um, to uh, the letter we wrote to the mayor, to the media, because they are publicly elected, and they're paid by the public. But people who are, say, in a minority position, the Green Party or the MPA, I I would talk to them individually and ask for their support. I would ask whether they would raise it in in a council meeting and ask what's being done about this. Um, And in fact, I've, uh, because one of the, because the Green candidate, Adrian Carr, was at a, a lecture. I was giving it Simon Fraser a couple of weeks ago about the We Are the City. Um, she was there, so I, I talked to her about it, and I gave her a copy of the document, Advancing Equity and Inclusion. And she, you know, unf- she didn't know about it. So um, I will, and in terms of if you have a personal relationship with these people, you can talk and argue with them personally, but I wouldn't attack them in the media as a woman specifically. 
I would raise the issues because women get attacked all the time as being women. We want, you know, we have to say this is what it is for women. And I don't think it, it, it serves any use, really. I don't know, uh, to say, you know, you're a woman, you should be fighting for these issues. Yeah. We want everybody to be fighting for these issues. Mm-hmm. But as a representative of a population, I guess yeah. it's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, I have if there was a gay person who was closeted and they were being discriminated against other other queers, I I would say that people should out that person. There's no question about that. If she if if a woman is betraying something for women, like not voting for a bunch some money being um, allocated to childcare, I would call them out in that case. Do you find yourself frustrated or burnt out continuing to have these conversations after so many years of <laughs> activism and politics? I'm ser- really because I um I know that burnout is a problem in social justice movements when change is so slow and you're up against such strength in opposition even if it's a, si- a silent or quiet or soft opposition. You know I did Tai Chi for 10 years, and I think it's really important to um, pace yourself and, and uh, be like the bamboo. You know, you, you push as hard as you can until you, you, you feel like you can't push further, and you push. You keep pushing. and you ha- But you have to build support networks. You have to build organizations. We, we are up against such formidable obstacles that we have to build organizations that support us and that can help us decide the best approach and what's, what's the, the best mode of, of going forward. And we've, you know, I've been just part of this Up for Debate national campaign to put women's issues into the federal election. And that was just great to be working across Canada. Again. And I think that we have to push the Liberals to refund a national women's organization across Canada, coast to coast to coast, because it is it is grueling and it is um, difficult. And as oppressed people, women uh, can attack other women and uh, be less than principled in handling issues because we have so little power and we get so frustrated that we can take it out on each other. So, yes, sometimes I'm, you know, last night after I spoke, uh, after they showed the movie Status Quo, and it, you know, I think, oh, my God, we've gone so far backwards in Canada over the last 10 years. And it was actually the Liberals, Paul Martin, who ended the national housing program, the only G8 country without a national housing program. And all of these things, add up to homeless people on the streets and women staying in unsafe relationships because they can't afford housing. and You know, it is it is difficult. The neoliberal agenda is very powerful, and people don't understand that we can use the billions of dollars in the defense budget for health care, for university education, for housing. Like, there's a lot of money. It's not that the, there isn't money. It's that we have to say this is how we want our money spent. We want to spend the money for the common good, not for the, the in Canada, the 16%. Which wave of feminism would you say we're in now? I, I, can't, I can't say anymore because we are working so much internationally now uh, because of the Internet. 
you know, the Arab Spring impacted us. The 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 risings in Delhi and across India impacted us. And you know, we where we leverage say what what we some of us worked for during the Olympics to put set up the pride booth or and to put uh, I, I wrote a statement that I put about Vancouver being an LGBTQ friendly city um, and that was leveraged to Sochi so you know there's there's so many ways in which we're moving and and uh, leveraging off victories in other parts of the world that it that it's more like it, it really truly is a global movement, which it was when we won the vote. I mean, obviously, we leveraged uh, the vote in Canada. White women leveraged the vote on Canada uh, from the movement in the States and the movements in England, the suffrage movements in England. So it's not new in that sense, but it's more true than ever before. And we can look at policies and we can look at... I, I was invited to Turkey to speak at a U.N., uh, international conference called Women Friendly Cities, and Turkey has a three-year project of making cities women friendly, and yet the president Erdogan is a, is awful. He's terrible. He's slaughtering the Kurdish people, and yet there's these other things happening there that we could learn from. So yeah. I can't say that this is maybe this is the global stage of the women's movement. There are a lot of contradictions. It's it's pretty incredible. I was wondering if you have any final thoughts before we sign off here. Well, I, I hope that people will go to our website, womentransformingcities.org, and take a look at some of our work and learn from it, share it, uh, join us at a cafe, uh, come to our event, the Equity Inclusion Workshop, and learn how to use that document. But because Paris is on right now and we're so conscious of climate change, I think people really need to take a look at the, with an intersectional lens at any uh, green movement to make sure that it's working safe for Aboriginal women, uh, that given women in the home make 80% of the business decisions, are they at the table for those discussions of how to go forward? And we really all need to learn how to use an intersectional lens that's rooted in social justice. And we can build the kind of world we want if we do that and build movements that will do that. Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you for your work. Look forward to meeting with you some other time. Yes, thank you for all of your insights and all of your work. Okay. All right, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. My name is Ellen. So that was Ellen Woodsworth, who is a former Vancouver City Council member and current chair and founder of Women Transforming Cities, an organization out of Vancouver, British Columbia, that does lots of different things. I will read a quick little blurb on some of their action and activism. Um, they've been around for a number of years now, doing lots of work with the city of Vancouver to leverage policies to make them more gender inclusive and to make cities safer places for all of their residents rather than being uh, focused on only the needs of usually male-identified folks. So Women Transforming Cities are women, men, and youth working together to transform our cities into places where women and girls are safe, seen, heard, and can fully participate in all aspects of city life. 
WTC works to ensure political commitment to addressing and removing barriers that many women face in accessing essential services. So they hold regular uh, open discussions to the public. They're called cafes. And they uh, recently had one that was called Does Remembering Lead to Action Um, in the Wake of the Montreal Massacre anniversary that was happened this past Sunday on December 6th. So that was my conversation again with Ellen Woodsworth. And uh, just a note, in case you were wondering what intersectionality means, that was a word that was dropped a number of times throughout our talk, uh, that refers to the idea that uh, issues of gender, sex, race, um, class level, religious background and language all work together to create systems of power. So people who are not usually white, middle-class, heterosexual men often experience oppression. And if you approach critiquing that oppression with an intersectional lens, you will have a better chance of including as many people as possible in your activism. So thanks again for tuning in to TikTok. My name is Madeline Taylor. I will be back on air with you next week, Thursday night at 7.30. And up next, we've got New Era. So stay tuned for that on CITR 101.9 FM broadcasting from UBC. Look at that guy's beard. What's he got on his head? Hey, buddy, we don't want your type here. Yeah, what are you, some kind of terrorist? (laughs) Hey, be nice, okay? This bus is a safe harbor. 